this is Sarah Gotting. And this is Russell Klum. Welcome to Church of the City Teaching Podcast. Hey, have you heard? Church of the City is making a move in 2020. Check out our podcast episode called Our Next Chapter for more details. We're really excited and looking forward for you to join us. Good morning, the faithful 20. Man, holiday weekends are tough um, in one way as a church to know what to anticipate, um, but really, really grateful that you are here. Grateful that you made it um, this far through a long holiday. I know that it's not a given that you had rest over this weekend. Um, Some of you worked, some of you played really hard, some of you did just get the rest you needed. Um, And whatever it was, I hope that God met you in the middle of it. And I hope that you did find some reasons for gratitude um, and some reasons for moving forward um, as life continues, as time marches forward. We need these moments to reflect, to think, to hope. And genuinely, uh, my hope for you is that something good came of, um, came of this last long holiday. So my name's Russell. Um, I'm the teaching pastor here at Church of the City. And we have been um, beginning a a probably what's going to turn into a fairly lengthy um, time in the gospel according to a man named Luke. And this morning, I want to start with a quote. And we're, we're doing a little bit, um, I think I said this last week, but didn't make it overly clear, that this week is part two of last week's passage. The two times that we have together, last week's teaching and this week's teaching, they can be independent. You don't, you don't have to have been here last week. I'll fill you in on some of the big details but there's this, this point in the middle of this passage where it becomes obvious why this particular passage is included in the narrative about Jesus, even though, as of yet, Jesus is not at the forefront of the storyline. Um, as Luke unfolds what he wants to get to, he is setting the stage. And we're turning a corner. We're, we're definitely rounding the corner into the rest of the writing is going to be entirely about Jesus of Nazareth and his experience um, as a human being, his experience trying to convey to humanity um, what he's all about and what his kingdom is all about. But at this turning point, as the stage is being laid, um, and as we're establishing what's happening here, what we have is we have a, a crucial account, the one we're in right now, where we see some of the inner workings of what is going to come um, when Jesus begins to speak, when he begins to act, when he begins to interact with humanity. Um, and so as we, as we look at this passage this morning, and as we take the second half of it together, this quote comes to mind. And it's from an individual named, individual named Shane Claiborne. And he said this, um, those who follow Jesus should attract the same people that Jesus attracted and frustrate the same people that Jesus frustrated. This particular um, idea is not novel to Shane. Um, it's probably one that you may have yourself, um, in some version, come up against and realize that Jesus is a little bit of a disruptive figure. Um, if you've been around Church of the City at all, um, it is part of the framework of the way we express what Jesus is all about, that he is a destabilizing individual as he comes into the human story. He's not here to stroke our ego, pat us on the back, and tell us we've done a really good job being human. Um, He's here to confront the parts that are broken, to comfort the parts that need comforting, and to offer hope where hope hasn't been found. And to do that, what's painfully clear through the writings of the Gospels and just through human experience, is that we have to face the fact that life is not the way it should be. Your life isn't the way it should be. My life isn't the way it should be. Humanity is not the way it should be. And in order to speak into that kind of situation, in order to do anything about things being broken, oftentimes it requires a bit more pain. And as Jesus comes in and disrupts the normals, disrupts the religious elite, disrupts people in power, it's not comfortable. In fact, it's just the opposite of comfort. And we talk about Jesus being this great comfort all the time. And yet at the outset, at the beginning of the kingdom of God as it shows up through the human, Jesus, through the king arriving, the kingdom finding its place in the human story, what we see is a whole bunch of people 
who are really challenged with knowing what to do with Jesus and with the kingdom. Now, we're at this, this primal stage. We're at this, like I said, that we're setting the stage ready for Jesus. And to do that, if you remember what Luke has established, is there's a prophetic voice right now in the scene. His name is John. And John, being a relative of Jesus, um, and their mothers were acquainted with another, one another, even though they were from different generations, John's mother is quite old, and Jesus' mother is quite young. They know one another and have some encounters. In fact, if you recall, the very first prophetic voice in the writings of Luke was from Elizabeth, John's mom, over Mary, Jesus' mom, describing what kind of king Jesus would be, the kind of king that would topple kingdoms, the kind of king that would turn everything on its head, that would cause people to fall and others to rise, that this disruptive figure was coming. Well, John is kind of carrying on in his mom's footsteps. He is the voice of God preparing Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And as we looked at last week, what's happened is this individual, this wild individual, has left the epicenter of religion and culture in Jerusalem and traveled about 20 miles downhill to the lowest place on earth, to the the Dead Sea Basin, where the Jordan River joins the lowest collection of water on earth. If you remember, the elevation drop here is about 4,000 feet over about 20 miles. It couldn't be further removed from the mountaintop experience of the temple. I mean, just geographically, understanding that this situation that John puts himself in is in direct contrast with the temple itself. And he does it intentionally. And, the, and what we looked at last week is there's this, this prophetic word about John himself that he would make paths straight and he would bring mountains low and he'd raise valleys in a very kind of real way. The place he's standing mimics the metaphor of what he was going to do. That spiritually and culturally, socially, John is going to flatten things in preparation for the coming king. And as people come down to the Jordan River Valley, they're there to listen to him and to ask, what do we do with what you're saying? And what he was saying is, You're not safe. You as people, you as Israel, who believe that you're safe, you believe you're God's chosen people, you are. But what you believe God is doing with you is largely wrong. You believe that you are the privileged few who will win. When in reality, clear back at the very beginning of the relationship between God and this huge family called Israel, the covenant was much different. It was through you the world will be blessed. And subsequently, you'll find blessing as well. But the purpose is that humanity will be blessed through you. And your belief that you guys have a corner on the market of religion and God and power, and you're going to overthrow the Romans or all the oppressors who have come before the Romans, it's all wrong. In fact, what's actually happening right now, John is saying, is the opposite of that that there is an axe at the bottom of the tree of Israel ready to cut it down if you don't listen to the words of God. What John says here, what he says to these people is your belief about yourself being good enough is wrong. You aren't good enough. Your heritage isn't making you good enough. Your temple worship isn't making you good enough. Your religious duty isn't making you good enough. And so they ask questions of him. They're cut by it. They they begin to understand they aren't going to win the day through their own actions. And they ask, what do we do? If you remember from last week, what he responds, what he says, in real basic fashion, is a preliminary version of love your neighbors really well. Take care of people. Take care of people that you've wronged in the past. Take care of those that you have the power to harm and abuse. Take care of those around you who are suffering. And so this crucial point, it's at this point in the story where we stopped. And I want to pick it up right there as we we hear further from John, as he unpacks what kind of kingdom is on its way. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and pick it up. We're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. And I love this phrase that Luke uses. The way he... He, and if you remember, Luke wasn't here at this point. He wasn't a, a Christ follower early on. It was post-resurrection where he comes in contact with Christ, as far as we know. And so all of his information is through people who were around in these experiences. 
And so as he's listened to the stories of what happened in this moment, this is his interpretation of the response of the crowd listening to John. The people were waiting expectantly. That's a really powerful concept. If you think about what it looks like for a crowd of people to be expecting something. I mean, I love you guys, but right now you're not really expecting anything. You're here, you're receiving, you're hanging out, and it's good. But like when you're expecting something, I imagine it more like Black Friday at Best Buy. Like you're ready for the thing you're there for, right? Like you, and you're, you're all queued up. You're ready to do what you've come to do. I imagine there's a buzz, there's an energy. People have come down to the Jordan River Valley to listen to this wild-haired guy talk about the incoming kingdom of God in a place that's far removed from the Temple of Jerusalem. And they've listened to him, and they've considered what he had to say, and it's evoked something in them. It's provoked a, an anticipation, an expectation, a waiting, an activity of some kind of like, tell us what to do now. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Now this, this little picture, this little snippet that, that Luke gives us, this gives us a, a clue into the mindset of what's going on with the people listening to John. It, it may be hard to believe our day and age, but John is actually changing people's minds. He's actually eloquent enough, compelling enough, speaking to their situation well enough, that they're there wondering, maybe he's right. Maybe he's absolutely right. Maybe what you just said about us loving the people around us and taking care of the people we've harmed in the past is spot on because we've seen that play out over and over and over again, the epicenter of our religious faith in the middle of our society, and it's gotten us nowhere. And, and they're, they're cued in. They're expecting they're questioning, maybe this guy, maybe this, this oddball out in the wilderness is actually the one who's going to save us. So John answers them. He says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now just take this in for a second. It's probably familiar language if you've been around the church at all. This is kind of one of those passages where you kind of like hear it and people point to it and say, this is like a, a big pronouncement. And it is, it's a huge pronouncement. A person who is compelling and convincing, who's changing hearts and minds, who's doing something big out in the wilderness, off the beaten path, with crowds around him, that people are asking, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one? Could he be the savior? Could he be the hero of the story? Turns those people and says, not just I'm not that person, but he puts himself in, in rank with that person. And he says, what, what's going on here, what's happening here right now is good. We're going to get to it in just a minute, what, what is intended by this concept of baptize and what John is up to out here in the wilderness. But what he's saying is, yes, something big is happening right here. But understand this. As good as this is, it pales in comparison with what's coming next. As good as I am, as compelling as I am, as convincing as I am, I do not hold a candle to who is coming after me. I'm so unworthy in relationship with who the Messiah actually is that I wouldn't even be able to untie his sandal. Now this metaphor is, it lands pretty hard even in our society. Think on just for a second, the last time you took another person's shoe off. It's not the cleanest situation in the world. Um, I, I do this quite often. I've got little kids. Um, and that's, in and of itself, a little bit gross. But take the first century in Palestine, in a world without cars and paved roads. Take people who don't shower the way Western civilization showers. We've talked at length about this previously, but there's this um, ritual that goes on when you enter someone's home because your feet would be so exposed to the elements uh, not just your own sweat and dirt, but animal feces. It was very, very important to make sure feet were clean as you entered into someone's home. And so what John is hearkening to is the person responsible to make sure that people's feet were clean when they came to someone's event were the servants. They were the people in the lowest position. And John is saying, I am lower than the lowest person in the household who's responsible to clean the feet of the people coming to dinner compared to Jesus. 
This is where he ranks himself. Then he goes on. He will baptize he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, John here says, I'm unworthy, but let me make it really clear to you what is happening. I'm here establishing ground, ground zero. I'm here flattening things. So the work of the kingdom can begin from here forward. And the way he describes what this individual, this Messiah who is coming, is the way he describes what that person is going to do comes out of the agrarian society. He says, the Messiah is ready to clean things up. And he uses a metaphor that in an agrarian farming community, everybody would have gotten. But let me explain it for our city slicker version of humanity here. The winnowing fork and the threshing floor are concepts across many societies in order to get the grain out of the stalks that had been harvested. It would go something like this. When you have a field that's ready to be harvested, you send people out to cut down the stalks of grain. But the grain itself is locked in the head of that grain. And so you collect it in the bundles, and you, you do all that processing at one time. The harvest has to happen fairly quickly. And you move it all to a central location. And in many, in many situations, depending on what time of year you're harvesting, um, but if you're doing a, a, the harvest near the end of the year and things are going to get cold, it's really important to get that grain separated from the, from the stalk fairly quickly. And so at times, you would have a huge production of people moving those big, big, big clumps of grains to the central location called the threshing floor. What the threshing floor was is where they would unbundle all of that big bundle of, of stalks of grain, and they would put it in a pile in the middle of this huge stone slab floor. And you have one or more persons, depending on how big your farm was, taking pitchforks, basically, and they would scoop into it, stabbing the middle of the pile, lifting the whole pile up at one time and shaking it. But what happened as you shake it, is you'd have the, the heads of grain, they're surrounded by a little sheath called chaff. And the shaking motion would break that chaff open, and you'd hope for some breeze that would blow that little, little surround of the grain away. And the heavy grain itself would fall through, tumble through all of the stalks of grain. And as you shook, and you shook, and you shook, and you shook, the lowest layer on the threshing floor was the grain you wanted. We can imagine how difficult of a job this is. For the amount of mass you have in the stalks themselves and in the chaff going everywhere, you're getting little bits of grain out. And what you're doing is you're shaking, you're shaking, you're shaking, and the grain is falling in through the bottom, but so is all of the, the stalks as well. It's getting all intermingled. So this process is repeated and repeated and repeated until they're confident they've gotten all or the majority of the grain out of the stalks. And then they take those stalks, and you have to do something with it. They're just waste. Sometimes animals can eat them, but in this society, they didn't really do that. They were pasture-raised um, agrarian society at this point. So a lot of that grain would, or a lot of the, the stalks of grain were just waste. And when you have that much waste, the only thing that you can do with it is you burn it. So next to the winning floor, down a hill usually, you'd be tossing all of this and you have other people moving all the extra waste down the hill into a fire. And this very labor-intensive process would be repeated and repeated and repeated until the whole field had been harvested. And this is the metaphor that John uses to describe the inbreaking kingdom of God through the Messiah. That it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple. But if the metaphor holds, what he's saying is, humanity is this wheat. It's been harvested. And the Messiah is here to do work on humanity, and it involves something that is labor-intensive on the part of the Savior, but also potentially painful for us. Think on this for a second. Think of the implications of this metaphor for a moment. A winnowing fork, a pitchfork being stabbed into humanity, lifting humanity and shaking it. Separating out the different parts of what we are and who we are. This is not a process that is the kind of process where you're like, well, you're already there. You're already, you're already well established. We just come as you are. You're a bushel of grain and you're fine. That's exactly what we need. That isn't what John is saying. The implication of his metaphor is not only 
is the work of the Messiah and Savior hard? But the process that we undergo as the Messiah comes into our story, in and of itself, is disrupted, is painful. And it changes who we are. It separates who we are as an individual, but also as a society. The implication here is that there will be some in Israel who will not accept who the Messiah is, and they'll be rejected. And they will reject Messiah. There are some who, through some great pain and some great process, will come to terms with it, and there will be some fruit that falls out. Now, at this point, this particular metaphor becomes pretty central to what John is saying. I'm sure he said a lot of things down in the Jordan River Basin. But this is what people who were there, and people who heard from people who were there, related to Luke as the driving metaphor they heard John say. And in response, what's going on is that people are being baptized. People are choosing to do something with this information. And furthermore, beyond just this metaphor, Luke says that John said many other things as he preached or taught the good news. Now, I don't do this very often, but I really desperately need to look at these two words because they become the building block for what happens next in our story. And we'll get to this further as we go through the story of Jesus. But if you're okay with this, if you're not, that's okay too. You don't have a choice. Um, you can check out for a few moments. Um, but if you're okay with it, I want to take you just on just the smallest journey into the language this is written in. Uh, the book of Luke, like much of the New Testament, wasn't written in English initially. It's been translated for our benefit. But initially, it was written in the language people spoke um, 2,000 years ago in Palestine and across the Roman world, language of Greek. And this word baptize has come up several times already came up at the front end of our passage last week that people are coming down to be baptized. They have heard something's going on. I want to do that. Here we see again that John, people in response, John is telling them, be baptized. And then he even goes a step further and he says to them, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Something even more profound or strange or mysterious or something. So we need to examine this word for just a second. The word um, is interesting in this regard it's not translated in English. Uh, a translation of a word is, is something where we say the equivalent from one language to the other is this or that. What's happened with this word is because it's so theologically difficult. <clears throat> Initially, when the English translation in the 1500s was first produced, there was so much disagreement about what was meant by this word, they left it untranslated. What that means is we did something called transliteration, where every single letter from one language just gets moved into the closest letter of the new language. So you'll hear the word uh, in Greek, and you'll recognize it. The word is baptizo. And you hear the word baptize in there. And that's all that happened. They left it unexplained. And so for now, about 500 years in English-speaking communities, we've really struggled to know what to do with this word because it's left untranslated. The word before it's used religiously in Greek is used in several very mundane kinds of ways. Uh, when you're washing a dish and you put that dish under water, um, you baptize it. When a ship sinks in the ocean, the ship has been baptized. Um, the word essentially means to, to sink, to, to dip, to immerse, to submerge. And the concept here is really, really simple. Its implications aren't as simple, though. What's going on when people are going down to the Jordan River Valley to hear a wild-haired individual talk about the kingdom of God, and their, and their response to it all is, let's get into the river and do something. I mean, just naming it on the surface here, this is a strange thing. It is really strange that people would choose to do this, at least if you think about it from the perspective of the non-religious. But remember, the majority of these people culturally are very religious, they're very formed by their religious practices and duty. Up until this point, the majority of evidence we have inside of Judaism, which is the community of people of Israel, is that the majority of them practice and, or watch the practice of baptism in one place, or they knew about it in one place, and had to do with priests. Part of the ritual process of getting ready to make a sacrifice at the temple was that the priest offering the sacrifices would take a bath. 
They completely submerge themselves. And, the, and this, the point of this particular point in the ritual was that that was the cleaning spiritually of that priest. Because if the priest itself, himself had sin on him, that had to be dealt with. But the priest, being sinful, couldn't make a sacrifice for himself until he was clean. And so there's this intermediary step in the process where the priest himself would take a bath. And that was seen as good enough for the sins of the priest, then the priest could go on and make sacrifice for the people of Israel. But what's going on here with John is an expansion of that kind of idea. Now, we don't have a well-established rationale. No one articulates John's mindset on why he chooses this particular form. Many people just describe it to you, this is the work of God. And as a prophet, um, he's responding to what God intended for his people. But at its outset, on its surface, the attachment to the practice of the priest being cleaned for the priest's sins moved into the masses outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, down at the Jordan River Valley is a huge statement about access to the kingdom of God. No longer is the washing of one person good enough. And no longer is it sequestered to to a single person. John is saying access is granted. The temple is becoming irrelevant. Something is happening that's disrupting the practice of temple worship and sacrifice. And it includes you. What he's saying to the people of Israel is what's gone on at the temple is no longer good enough to keep you, to save you, sustain you, to connect you with God. What's more important is that you as a human being respond. That you respond as you understand that God is coming to earth. That you prepare. And the way he says tangible, and I think this is brilliant, the tangible way he says you prepare is that you deal with, in here, your brokenness and your sin. And earlier in the passage, he tells them, Repent, meaning name it. Name the sins you have. Give them up, turn away from them, and move towards God again. Give up this elitism that you have, the belief you have that you are God's special people on earth for your own benefit. Repent of that sin and do something about it. Wash it away. So John is baptizing people. He's immersing them, cleaning them, washing them in a very mysterious yet powerful kind of way. But then another word here that is absolutely crucial for understanding what's going on in the storyline of Luke. This word to preach the good news. It's how it's translated in many English translations. The word, um, you'll, you'll hear the word, um, and you might even see it um, if you try to put this together. Also, um, really challenging word. It wasn't translated until about 30 years ago in most English translations. It was also a transliterated word, a word that was left untranslated because the meaning of it is, is a challenge. But the word um, is the word uangalizomai or uangalizo. And the concept, transliterated, came into English. It was E-U-A, the U became a V, evangelize. If you take that word and you put it, insert it here, a transliterated, non-translated word, John evangelized these people with many more things. The problem with using that word is that we have a whole bunch of baggage associated with that word, being that it was left untranslated. So translators now are trying to do their best. The word literally means good news. But it's the verb of good news. It's not the noun. It's not the thing. It's not like he just like, it, there's no modifying verb here. So in the NIV, the one we use, is translated, he preached good news, which I think is pretty, pretty fair. I mean, this is an uh, oral communication kind of situation. He's out there telling them things. And yet the word is richer than that. Luke uses this word. This is the first time in the writing um, of this particular document. Luke writes a companion document. That takes place after the resurrection of Jesus. We call it the book of Acts. And the two together tell the storyline from here at the beginning of the prophetic vision of the coming Messiah all the way through the establishment 
the beginning stages of the church community. And all the way through, he uses this verbal form of the word good news. And in a challenging kind of way, we reduce it down to something like, I need to tell you everything I believe to be true about God in a single breath and hope that you raise your hand and say, I'm in, when in fact, the word itself probably more accurately translated, isn't just to preach good news, but is to good news somebody, to be good news, to speak good news, to do good news. See, what John is saying here is at the, at the very foundational stage, what's emerging into the storyline of humanity is something good. And what Luke is undergirding here with John as the epicenter of this particular story is it? yeah, it has a verbal component to it. Let's talk about Jesus. But it has a very reactive kind of component as well. He's just said, those of you who take advantage of people, don't do that any longer. Those of you who have power because you're a soldier, stop abusing people. Those of you who recognize there are people around you in need, meet those needs. It's not reduced to this one line about do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's far more expansive than that. And here, John is exemplifying a very tangible, in-flesh version of a human being becoming good news to people, confronting their, their assumptions about their privilege and their power, and giving them an opportunity to respond when they ask him, what do we do with that? Now, all that's well and good, okay? Some establishing background here. These next two pieces, these next two small parts that Luke includes, I think solidify our very first picture of the kingdom of God in a way that we haven't yet seen in the book of Luke. Luke includes two small, two-line pieces. Let's go at them one at a time. Pick it up in verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod had added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now just take this for a second as Luke lays it out. There's a lot more to be said about what's going on in this passage. A lot more to be said about what's not said by Luke. There's a lot of things that happen down in the Jordan River Valley that he doesn't point at. But immediately after saying that people have come down to the river, they've come to respond to something like the kingdom of God showing up, something like the goodness of God arriving on earth, and they're doing it in very tangible kinds of ways through being baptized. The next thing, the very next thing that Luke says is, and John goes on Herod's hit list for it. This isn't the reaction that many of us would want from anyone in power let alone if we were writing the story of how to change humanity, we probably wouldn't include a twist like this. As I think about the way many of us think about Christianity, the way that many of us describe faith, we describe it in things getting better constantly. We continue to climb and rise and feel like the world's getting better and more hopeful, that our world is getting simpler and easier and more put in order, returning to something whole and complete, <clears throat> excuse me, complete again. And to some extent, I think that's true. But here at the beginning of the kingdom of God arriving on earth through a prophetic voice, just flattening the ground, getting things ready for for Jesus to show up, it's already met with confrontation. It's already disruptive enough that the leader of this region, the governor of this region, appointed by the emperor to make sure the Jews don't get out of line, is so irritated he started to build a list of reasons why John is going to be arrested. We're going to fast forward just a little bit here. Spoiler alert, John gets arrested. Furthermore, he gets his head chopped off by this person, by Herod, because of what's going on down the Jordan River Valley. John is saying if the kingdom is coming and disrupting what's happening in our society, no one is immune. And he takes a very visible person, this leader, this governor, Herod, 
And he uses them as an example to say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to cheat on your brother with your brother's wife and then take your brother's wife as your own, no matter how powerful you are. And it irritates Herod. The response to the goodness of God showing up on earth is oftentimes not met with people just being really glad about it. When this kingdom shows up, when the goodness of God arrives, even when it's just beginning to be unfolded by a prophet before Jesus, it's met with resistance. It frustrates people. It disrupts them. It irritates them to the point where they'll act poorly because of it. And just taking a sidestep from this moment, where we see the result of what John is saying down the Jordan River Valley. We have to ask ourselves, we have to take a little bit of pause and reflect for a minute. When people who are confronted by the goodness of God, by the gospel, the good news, as John says here, and Luke says about John, when that happens, if the response by a community or by individuals is that, yeah, that sounds, that sounds great, simple, wonderful, comforting. Sounds like my life's going to get easier. It should terrify us. When we sit in church constantly and we share what we call the good news and people are like, yeah, you know what? I like that. I'm going to get ahead in life with that. I'm going to build my little empire with that. I'm going to climb my corporate ladder with that. I'm going to have more money in my bank account with that. It should give us pause and recognize that what has been said is not the gospel. Because the gospel itself is inherently destabilizing and disruptive. Particularly to people in power and people with resources. What we see here is we see the most frustrated person is the most powerful person in Palestine. And this is prior to Jesus even showing up, prior to him even making himself known. This is just somebody saying, let's get ready for that. But then it continues, and there's one other small piece here that Luke includes. Pick it up in verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he, and as he was praying, <clears throat> heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now we get far more expansive versions of that, particularly in the writings of John himself. Different John, not John the Baptist, John the disciple of Jesus. But this particular small rendering of what happens is the footnote of this whole encounter. It's the last thing, almost as if it's tacked on the end. In fact, if you look through English translations, many English translations don't know where to attach this. Does it go with the next story, or does it go with the story we just looked at? And I argue it goes with the story we just looked at for good reason. Namely because, this is John the Baptist, this is his big story in the book of Luke. This is where we see him saying what the kingdom of God is all about. We see people responding to being baptized, and we have Jesus participating. The issue here that people have is, it feels so underwhelming to give it just two lines when Jesus is baptized. But I wonder, I wonder if it's not for good reason. Because I wonder if in Luke's narrative here, if Jesus being baptized, while monumental and big, in and of itself isn't the point he's trying to make. One of the things that we do as we try to understand scripture is we try to play with the story itself, especially these narrative sections. We try to make sense of What's going on based on who's a part of the story? A lot of times we, we forget to name the characters in a story. So let me just list a few of these off. First, we have John the Baptist, right? Big, big person here, right? Central character to this particular story. We have Jesus, but Jesus so far has been at the margins. We didn't even know he was at the scene until this moment. And here he is being baptized, and there's something pretty monumental happening. We have a crowd of people hanging out around this whole thing. We have God apparently speaking from heaven. But there's some specific people 
that I've been trying my hardest not to name from last week. Because I think they are the point of this particular passage and why Luke includes the baptism of Jesus in the first place. We have a crowd of Israel, people who are genuinely curious about what's going on in the wilderness. Then we have some placeholder people. We have tax collectors and we have soldiers who have come down and listened to what John has had to say and have individually asked, what do we do with what you're telling us? And then we see them respond. Now, as placeholders, we talked about this last week, tax collectors are not loved people. In fact, they're lumped in with a whole group of of degenerates in the first century Palestinian society. They're sinners. When Jesus goes and hangs out with them, he himself is labeled as a degenerate sinner. They're not people that you would say, let's build an empire around these people because it's going to go really well for us. And you have soldiers, Romans, or people who've sold themselves into Roman servitude as soldiers. As a placeholder of people who crossed lines, who've left Israel behind and are fighting for the oppressors. And these are the kinds of people who so far have been responding to the good news. The ones who came in the first place, the one who, whose minds were changed significantly enough to ask questions, what do we do with it? The ones who respond by taking John seriously and saying, yeah, I'm a broken mess and I need help with that, and are baptized. These are the ones who are crowded around John listening to the metaphor of what the Messiah is going to come and do. He's going to come and shake things up quite literally. He's going to turn us over and shake hard, and hopefully something good comes out of that. He's going to disrupt all of this. They're the ones who are aware of the fact that this is not a popular view. The, re- the religious leaders and the civil leaders in and around Palestine are not happy about this kind of gathering of people. It looks like sedition. It looks like maybe an uprising. It looks like people gaining power to overthrow something. These are the people who are standing there when through the crowd, maybe in obscurity, Jesus walks out into the water and lets John baptize him, which quite frankly is one of the most confusing moments in the life of Jesus for me. And nonetheless, he does. But the response, what happens next, is unlike what any other person in the multitudes who've been baptized so far has experienced. Instead of just coming back up out of the water and walking back up on the shore to rejoin the crowd, heaven opens up. And a mysterious, beautiful, wonderful kind of thing descends from heaven The best we have for it is it's the Holy Spirit in bodily form like a dove. And in most pictures, all we get is a dove to represent that. I promise you it was not just a dove. Something spectacular happens. And the voice inaugurates the kingdom of God arriving on earth. Yes, Messiah was born some 28 or 29 years prior to this. But in this moment, The hand of God says, this is my son. This is my child. This is the one in whom I am well pleased. And you know who witnessed it? Degenerates. Traitors. Outcasts. A bunch of people who had walked 20 miles, descended 4,000 feet in elevation, to listen to a wild-haired man in the wilderness Tell them, the temple will not save you. They are the ones who are attracted to the kingdom. And in stark contrast to someone like Herod, who's deeply frustrated by the inbreaking kingdom of God, they represent the substance of the kingdom of God. In my view, this particular snapshot of how things begin, of how this whole thing gets started, how the whole thing jumps into motion, 
it's not just instructive for us to tell us who is welcome inside the kingdom of God, but I think it starts laying the foundation and the boundary lines for who's in and who's not in the kingdom of God. That those who are broken enough, who see their own brokenness clearly enough, that when they come face to face with the goodness of God, react with questions. Like, what do I do with that? Where do I go from here? How do I find that hope? When those who are positionally quite proud, quite powerful, quite privileged, react just the opposite. As Messiah, Jesus could have gone demanding with, I'm sure, all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders into the temple court and said, what the priests have been doing in that bathtub of water has been all fine, well, and good. But I'm the Messiah. I am the high priest. I am the one who deserves to be in that water. And he could have had this event happen in front of every religious leader in Israel. And he didn't. And the reason, in my view, the reason is because of these tax collectors and these soldiers, these everyday crowds who have just been told the kingdom is about taking care of your neighbor. The kingdom is about not abusing people around you. The kingdom is not taking advantage of people with your privilege and your power. And they just witnessed the inauguration, the big moment when the king showed up and the voice of God said, this is it. This is the kingdom. A ragtag group of people out in the wilderness trying their absolute best to make peace with God and follow well. And this is how the rest of the story goes. It plays out over and over and over again. We see Jesus regularly focusing the epicenter of his kingdom on people who are at the margins. Not at the exclusion of those who are at the center, but he doesn't say, I'm going to build my kingdom around you who are in power. He allows those who are in power to deal with him, to respond to him, and some do. Some religious leaders come and they say, I want to know more. But the majority, because of their wealth, their privilege, and their power, choose to reject Jesus much like Herod does as he rejects John. So the question for us is the same question. Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you want to follow the kind of Savior who attracts the degenerates, the broken, the messy, the sinful, the betrayers, and says, you're the reason I've shown up? Or do you want to follow a Jesus who's building a bigger empire with softer chairs and more money and helping your corporate ladder grow and flourish as you climb it? What we see here in Jesus is where we started with, as Shane names it, that if we're going to follow Jesus, we should attract the same kind of people that Jesus attracted and frustrate the same kind of people that Jesus frustrated. Let's pray. God, it's just um, a sense of gratitude as I think about the fact that you you started your kingdom with with riffraff, the outsiders, with people who are open about their sin, who are willing to name the fact that they weren't good enough in front of crowds. <clears throat> and walk into water to both publicly and personally seek something that looks like redemption and renewal.
And I'm grateful that you met them in that place. Yourself, personally. That you also walked into the very same water. And you demonstrated that these people, these witnesses, these ones standing on the shore of the Jordan were the right ones. The right ones to carry the very beginning part of this story forward. The ones who witnessed something, I'm sure, beyond their imaginations. God, I'm grateful for that because it means there's hope. It's hope for us as people. God, as we mimic the ways of your son Jesus, God, I pray that we'd also look at the people around him and mimic the ways of those who respond well. God, I pray we'd find ourselves among the crowd on the shore of the Jordan River, part of your inauguration. God, I pray that we would see our own brokenness honestly. That we would be caught in the midst of trying our absolute best to do something about it. God, that we would be caught in a moment of awe and wonder and glory as you show up in the middle of it. God, it's not easy to be a follower I think on John's metaphor and how disruptive it is. Life isn't as simple in ways as it would be if we were to turn our backs on you. And yet, God, even in the way that you disrupt our life, God, we can see how good it is. How good it is to be a part of what you're doing on earth to give love away, to give hope away, to renew strength of people who are frail, comfort people who are in pain, to right the wrongs of injustice, and to seek the good of communities, cities, nations, and cultures. God, I pray as we continue forward as humans, trying our best to follow you, that we would just see more and more clearly who you are and what you're doing. God, we love you. We pray in your name.